Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, we are in Isaiah chapter 8 tonight. And we got a lot to cover, and I don't think we're going to get through it all, so we're going to do our best. Um, let's, let's review a little bit. In uh, Isaiah, who is, who is Assyria? Who's Assyria? Very bad people, yes. It's true, they are. Where are they? South? North? It's north. Yeah, it is north. Yep. They come from the north. That's right. All right. Who is Aram? Anybody remember that? Okay. Another name for Aram is the Arameans. Another name for them is uh, Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. And what's their capital? Damascus, same as today, right? And then uh, who is, in Isaiah, who is Ephraim in Isaiah? Who is it? Israel. It's the northern kingdom. God uses uh, Ephraim to refer to the whole northern kingdom. And usually when he's talking about Israel, unless it's uh, included in um, some kind of description of God, like the God of Israel, Israel usually is the northern kingdom. And Judah, who's Judah? The southern kingdom. It's not just the tribe of Judah. It's usually when Judah is referred to. It's uh, unless there's some kind of relationship to the throne. Um, it's talking about the southern kingdom, which is Benjamin and Judah, probably Simeon, and some of Levi is mixed in there as well. All right. Um, anybody remember, I don't want to show you the timeline yet, but if you've been paying attention, uh, a prophet that is concurrent or alive at the same time as Isaiah. You can't get this from looking at the next-door neighbors in the Bible. No. Jeremiah is about 100 years later. Hosea is. He's in the north. I'm thinking southern kingdom prophet. Uh, it's, it's Micah. Micah, much later in the Bible, but he's prophesying about the same time as Isaiah. All right, so let's get into this a little bit. Micah and Isaiah are prophesying at the same time, and they both mix these current events with this prophetic foretelling. So they're telling about what's going on. They're addressing the concerns of people, and then they'll suddenly shift gears, and we have to pay close attention to this because they'll suddenly shift gears, and they'll talk about something in the future, the the future reign of Christ, the future coming of Christ, and you can see that uh, throughout this. We're gonna we're gonna see an example of that tonight, and uh, they'll talk about all that the coming of Christ will bring. So in one moment they're talking about the threat of Assyria, and the next they're talking about he's talking about the birth of Christ, and and, and that's true with Micah as well. And maybe this is what prophecy does: is it links the the troubled present circumstance with the future promises of God, with his, his presence now, but also the hope that there is in him, and so that anyone who hears them can have hope. And so one example of this is Micah chapter 5. It'll go back and forth between the threat of Assyria and talking about Bethlehem, where the Savior will be born, and Isaiah chapter 9 as well. So let's remember the situation here. Aram and Ephraim have joined their strength against Judah. Okay, so this is the, the present context. They've joined their strength against Judah. They've individually, they've come and made attempts to um, sack Jerusalem, and both of those attempts failed, and so they got together and they said, if we can't do it on our own, let's get together on this, and let's attack Jerusalem, and we can conquer it. And what did that do to the people of Jerusalem? Does anybody remember the king and the people of Jerusalem? They got scared, didn't they? Like there's a real threat that's that's coming, and so they're shaking about this. And and Ahaz looks far away to the Assyrians for help against his malicious enemies, the enemies of Judah. And Isaiah urges Ahaz not to make an alliance with Assyria, and then he offers a sign. 
What's the sign? And Isaiah, this is Isaiah 7. Yeah, the virgin will give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. This is the sign. Ahaz rejects Isaiah's warning, and he moves forward with his plan by making an alliance with Assyria. Isaiah prophesies that Judah will face the consequences for trusting in the wrong things. Do you know there's consequences when we trust in the wrong things? There are, because one thing that can happen is if we put all of our confidence and all of our trust in the wrong kind of thing, that thing can be taken from us. And then what are we left with if our gods are stolen? You remember that guy in the book of Judges that he took some silver and he made his own idol? And then a bandit, a group of bandits came along and, and stole his idols and his priest. He hired a priest out of his own pocket to be his personal priest. And they came and just took his whole religion away. And the guy's, the guy's uh, weeping and crying at that. But, but that's, what, that's what happens when we put our confidence in the wrong things. When we put our confidence in God, no, no one can take that from us, right? No one can pluck you out of his hand. And so you're secure in that sense that God has given you uh, his promise that your kingdom that you're receiving will not be shaken. And so now Isaiah is being um, warned where we're coming to tonight. He's being warned not to fear what other people fear. And this is where we'll pick up in Isaiah uh, 8, verse 11 through 9, 7. And so we're going to cover 18 verses if we can tonight. Let's look at this together. All right, verse, what did I say? 11 through 9, 7. Okay, all right, start reading at verse 11 here. This is what the Lord says to me, says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one that you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear, and he is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place. Okay, your translation might have sanctuary there. Uh, For both Israel and Judah will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They They will fall and be broken and they will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. That's wonderful. Let's stop there for a moment and think about this. He's saying that despite the fact that I can't see the presence of God and and perhaps it even appears that God has abandoned all of his people. He said, I will continue to put my confidence in the Lord. I will trust in the Lord. Here I am and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When someone tells you, consult a medium or a spiritist who whispers and mutters, should, sorry, I got a page break here. Should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to his word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam throughout the land, and when they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Then they will take, uh, sorry, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will trust in, or they will be thrust in utter darkness. Sorry. Nevertheless, since uh, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress, in the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing up the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, and the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot will be used in battle used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, 
a child is born and a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. I'm winded a little bit, and I shouldn't be because I've been shoveling a lot of snow. So I don't know what the deal is. Let me catch my breath here. We're, we're doing uh, this mini-series on Isaiah here and um, looking at some of the context that all of this falls into. And last time when we, we left off, uh, we talked a little bit about signs and the gentle waters and the flood. Maybe you remember a little bit of that. And if not, you should go back and check that out because there's some real powerful pictures there that what is mighty isn't always what looks mighty. Okay? And what looks mighty isn't always mighty. You see the, the weird irony that, that happens there, and you can see that all through Scripture as well. But we want to look at the fear of the Lord and other things again. We left off in the middle of this, and he says, God says to Isaiah that you're not to fear the things that other people fear the, and call conspiracy what other people call conspiracy. To fear means to take something seriously, and and we talked a little bit about that, as some people can take the things that they are afraid of very seriously, but not God so seriously. And, and he's encouraging them to put their confidence in the Lord. So this speculation that was going on, because people weren't trusting in God, they had given their hearts over to fear. And the result of that was that a lot of people were shaken by that. They were all wrapped up in speculation and it was creating a climate of terror rather than fearing the Lord, um, whom they failed to take seriously. You see, God's presence was with them. God's promise was for them. Uh, his power was for them. His, he made requirements of them. And I don't really think people have changed that much. If people aren't trusting in God, they'll trust in other things. Isn't that true? That we'll look to something, either ourselves or... Um, I said this a couple of weeks ago on Sunday, but I'm baffled that some people will not trust in the Lord because it just seems too far-fetched, but they will they trust in superstitions. They put their confidence in rabbit's foots and lucky socks, and you know they, they don't want to step on the crack, and they don't want to be uh, you know number 13. And I don't know if you know this, this, but there's a lot of buildings, they don't have the floor 13. Did you know that? And it's ridiculous because that whole superstition started because if you're the 13th person at a table of 12, then you're the one who's supposed to die. That's where that all started. And that all goes back to the Last Supper. Did you know that? And so it's a weird, crazy superstition that developed around the number 13. And so people haven't changed that much. We're either going to trust in the Lord or trust in something else. We'll get caught up in the drama of current events or we'll trust in that which is eternal. So regarding trust, let's talk about this for a moment. The difference between shadow and substance. Okay, I don't know if you thought about this before, but um, there is a difference between something that is merely a shadow and something that is solid. And a shadow appears in places just simply where there's no light. Okay, try to follow this because it's going somewhere. A shadow appears in place where there's no light. It seems to me that conspiracies, much like the superstitions, uh, multiply where light doesn't shine or where people refuse the light, okay? So they get superstitious because they refused the light. So there, get, there must be some explanation for all of this. Now, that's not the fault of the light because even in a bright room, there can be shadows. You can find a shadow in a bright room, can't you? So if you're looking for shadows, you can find them even in a bright room. And where there's darkness, there's speculation. If I can't see well, my mind guesses at the pattern. Um, one, one time when I was a little kid, I don't know why this sticks out in my mind, but um, when I was laying on my bed, my bunk bed, I looked out, and I think there was a rocking chair or something in the room. And I looked at that, and the way that it looked with the light coming through the window, it looked like a person was standing there. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You look at something in the, the dark, and your mind fills in the blank, and you see something else. It wasn't a person, because I quickly flipped the light on, and it's just the rocking chair. It's the same thing. And so 
our mind finds patterns when it can't see well. And so um, that's just an example of how there's no substance to that. But shadows have no substance to them. They have no effect upon the object that they land upon. No one says, ouch, I got hit by a shadow, right? That's, there's no substance to it. Or um, no one says um, they, don't, they don't push or pull us. Um, shadows are what we make of them. And a substance, on the other hand, has shape and weight and density, and it can be shown for what it is by light. And so this prophecy that um, Isaiah is giving here, he's talking about shadow and substance. He doesn't use those words. He uses words like conspiracy and the fear of the Lord. And he's going to talk in just a moment about sanctuary um, versus some superstition. He's going to talk about the sanctuary and the stone of stumbling. Okay? There's substance to him, and substance has weight. And the prophecy goes from talking about conspiracies to a stone. Conspiracies are a shadowy world without substance, but where you see the stone that he talks about here, there's substance that you can build a life upon. And we know that. We know that to be the case, that you can build your life upon him. Uh, a temple is a thing of substance. A fortress is a thing of substance. And and often in the Bible, one of the figurative uh, uses of stone is it's a refuge for us. Okay, But there's an alternate side to that. And the alternate side is that a stone can be a stumbling block as well. And so the point is plain enough. Build your life by finding out what's solid and rest upon that and get rid of looking to the shadows. We don't need to concern ourselves with the shadows. We need to concern ourselves with what's in the light. And so the consequence of being without faith for Ahaz, and most likely for us too, is that we end up fixating on the wrong kinds of things. Okay, Ahaz is focused upon um, the Assyrians coming and knocking on the door. And um, so he's thinking about all of that, and it causes him to put his confidence in the wrong thing. He's trusting in Assyria. A problem that would too soon go away. Like, what is he concerned about? Why does he look to Assyria again? Remind us. What is it? I'm talking about why Ahaz, the king of Judah, is looking to Assyria to help him out. Why is he doing that? Do you remember? Yep. Those, those two kings are a threat. And so because he got scared, he put his confidence in the wrong kinds of things. And what he's too short-sighted to see, and Isaiah is telling him this, is that before that child is old enough to call out mom and dad, God's going to take care of those two kings. And he says, he says it like this. It's really cool because he says the head of Aram is only Damascus and the head of Damascus is only resin. And he says... Uh, Ephraim, the head of Ephraim is only Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only the son of Remaliah, right? So these two kings are uh, going to be taken care of before this baby that hasn't yet been born. It's kind of a foreshadowing of the Messiah, but he's talking about another baby immediately, and the later, the later understanding is of the Messiah. But um, he says before this baby gets old enough to say mom and dad, those two kings aren't going to be an issue, but you've gone and made a treaty with another king. You've put your confidence in something else. I hope you understand that this is what we do, is that if we don't know, if we get scared, we can, we can run to put our trust in other things instead of in God. What feels comfortable? Our old, our old comfort zones, our old comfort places, sometimes our old sin because it's easy to go back to those things, and we know that at least it'll take our mind off of it for the moment. And so that's what he does. Ahaz, the king of Judah, puts his confidence in Assyria. And we don't have time to go through all of this tonight, but you remember that Isaiah rebukes him and says, you put your confidence in the Euphrates rather than the cool, smooth stream that flows down and brings nourishment to Jerusalem. It doesn't look mighty, but it's the source that you need. Okay? And God is mighty. It's just that often the way he manifests himself to us is in gentle ways.
Okay? And so don't be deceived by what looks mighty. Look to the God that you know is a God of substance. Okay? So then he says, and this is found in verse, uh, chapter 8. Let's look back here. Verse, um, sorry, do you see the sanctuary part? Oh, the Lord says, in a strong, do not call conspiracy. Okay, verse uh, 14 here. He will be a holy place. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that causes them to fall. There's, a, there's an either-or thing here, and you, you may notice uh, this in the New Testament. But he says, sanctuary here, a holy place. Um, most other translations have sanctuary. If you have the, the NIV, it says holy place. If you have the ESV, KJV, NAS, I think they all say sanctuary right here. And this is a place of protection. And I think the picture here is the picture of a rock. Okay, When he's saying a sanctuary, this is a figurative way of saying this is a place of safety Okay, that you can run to. The Lord will be a place of safety and it's as if he's saying, if he's not that for you, then the other thing that he'll be, if you put your confidence in the wrong things, is he'll be a stumbling block to you. Because God is coming after your idols. God's coming after your false confidences. And he'll not let us be comfortable in our idolatries. He's taking those things down. And he will show us that he is the one that's worthy to be trusted. So he, he's saying to Isaiah, he will be a sanctuary to those who will put their confidence in him. And uh, the the Bible, um, sorry, the I'm trying to think of the name of it. I just have the initials here. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. It says a rock formed a solid foundation. It was a stronghold, a fortress, a refuge, a sanctuary. Okay, and you know that uh, later on, Isaiah says in chapter 28, "I lay in Zion a stone." A tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who trusts in him will never be dismayed. Okay, so it's a stone. I think he hasn't come into the full figure yet when he says sanctuary, but I think he's referring to a stone that is either one thing or another depending upon our reaction to him. You understand that this is the same thing as is prophesied in Luke chapter 2 when Simeon sees Jesus come into the temple. Do you remember he says, this will be... One or the other. I'll quote it in just a moment. But the other thing is that he can be a stumbling block, okay? The one who will cause uh, the rise and the fall of many in Israel, okay? A rock can be an obstacle just as well as it can be uh, It can be a fortress, depending on which side you are on it, right? If you're in the fortress, it's a good thing. But if you're outside the fortress, it can be a real obstacle, okay? A stumbling block and something that you trip over and it causes you to fall. Simeon says in Luke 2, 34 through 35, when he sees Jesus, um, he blesses them. And he said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to be the cause of the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So where we, where are we going to live? Are we going to be in this fearful realm of speculation where we're we're getting caught up in all of the conspiracies? Can I encourage you? Don't get caught up in that. There is a bottomless abyss of conspiracy out there. You can't get to the bottom of it. The best thing to do is not live in those shadows. Is to live in the light of the Lord. You know you can trust Him. Okay. We don't know what's going to happen with the future, except that we know in the end He wins. So there's things that we can't do anything about that we speculate about. And in the end, even if it's true or false, you can't even know if it's true or false. And even if you did know if it was true or false, you can't do anything about it except talk about it. The best thing we can do is talk about what we know is solid and not what is shadows. You see the difference? And so I think it's important that we put our confidence in God and the light of the Lord rather than in superstition or these shadowy conspiracies that everybody was getting caught up in Isaiah's day, and they are today as well. I mean, we have the Internet now. We can roll conspiracies out day after day nonstop. Come on, true? And, and please hear my heart on this. I think it's much better to dwell in what's known of God 
than what's unknown. Some of those things are fascinating and interesting, but they have no life to them. Okay, so I would encourage us, let's uh, lean on what we know. In verses 16 through 22, we have the true witness and the false. The true witness, he talks about here in verse 16 of himself and his kids being the true witness. Where is that? Bind up this testimony, verse 16, of warning, and seal up God's instruction among the disciples. And then Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here here am I and the children that you have given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. So going on, I guess you read those next verses. When someone tells you, consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimonies of warning. If anyone does not speak according to his word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. Uh, when they are famished, and they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. And when they look toward the earth, looking downward, they will see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into darkness. So you have the true witness and the false here. And the testimony... Um, that Isaiah gives is warning and instruction. And you remember he says, I am that witness and the children you've given me. Remember how his children, they were a testimony to the truth of God? One of them was like quick to the plunder, remember? And, and what that meant is that when you see this child grow up, you'll know that God has already taken care of the problem that you feared so much and that you caused you to put your trust in other things. And then the other one is God is with us, right? That's a, probably a, more of a throne name. Um, God is with us, Emmanuel. And these children and Isaiah himself are testimony as warning and instruction. And it seems to be instruction for the future. Trust in the Lord. And then he says in verse 17, I will wait, in the Lord, uh, wait for the Lord. I'll not jump to conclusions. I'll not fear. I'll not put my trust in futile things. I'll not waste my energy on speculating I'm going to put my confidence in the Lord. And then he says, I will be a sign for the Lord and to others. And I have a word I think is important for us tonight about this. I think all of this is important, but this, I felt like there's something important that needs to be said about it, is that there are times when people will not listen to what you have to say in your witness. Okay, And sometimes we can reason like this, that, if they're not going to listen, and I know that ahead of time, I'm not going to say it. And I think that's the wrong thing to do. Because I think that there are times where people, they need to hear the witness, even though you may know ahead of time, or you may guess, because we don't know for sure, that they're not going to respond to it. And why is that? You know, what about the verse, don't cast your pearl before swine? I understand that, but do you realize that there are times when we need to hold out the word of life, even if we know people aren't going to respond to it? That, and, and this is an example of that. Isaiah went and he talked to Ahaz, and he, he stood as a witness to God's faithfulness, and knowing people wouldn't respond to it, and he says that now I am a sign, okay? Because I've done what God asked me to do, and though nobody listened, this is true of all of Jeremiah's ministry too, though nobody listened, I'm a sign to God's faithfulness. And sometimes people won't listen to that, but... There's times where we need to stand as a sign to them um, by doing what's right and saying what's right in an unbelieving world. Philippians 1.28 says that we may be to some a sign of destruction. Okay, as you hold out the word of life, even though people may not listen to it because you've been faithful, it says something to them that God has faithfully tried to challenge them and to call them to repentance, but they refused it. And Mark chapter 6 um, it says, go to these different villages, and if they don't receive you, then shake the dust out. Do you remember that? As a testimony against them. So there's times when your, your witness will not succeed in the way we hoped, but it still needs to be said. Okay? still needs to be said. And, and so don't be the pragmatic type that says, I'm only going to do it if I know it will work. 
because sometimes you don't even know if it'll work or not. You may think this person's a long shot, and they might give their heart to Christ. But even if they don't, we need to hold out the truth and so that it's plain to everyone. There's the true witness. Isaiah says, I've spoken what's true concerning these things to Ahaz, and he's saying it to us too. God is trustworthy. But then there's the false witness, okay? And he talks about this at the end of chapter 8 here. There are other voices with a different message. And if we'll not look to the Lord, then we will look everywhere else. John Oswald, in his commentary on Isaiah, says, Having lost the only real source of confidence, belief in an all-wise and all-loving creator, they turn to more limited but supposedly less demanding sources. And uh, he says the revival of superstition is concomitant. It goes with the loss of faith. When we lose faith, superstition rises up. When we don't have the light, we dwell in the shadows. Okay, And that's what, that's what he's trying to say here. But let me go back to this. Um, people turning away from the loving creator and turning to less demanding sources. Do you know that fortune tellers don't require a lot of you? They just want your money. They don't want your life. God wants your life. And for some people, they don't want the light of the Lord because they know that that demands that we repent and live for him. Okay? And so that is one reason why people cling to superstition um, and pagan religion is because it makes no real demands of us morally. But you can see in verse 19, without the word of God, they will look elsewhere. Um, let me go back to that 19. It's, he says, when someone tells you consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should you not inquire of the Lord your God? Okay. They're turned away from the, the uh, Lord and they're looking to other things. The chirp and mutter is one way that people thought the dead spoke. Okay, so... A lot of Jewish sources will tell you that when uh, they were doing this, that it was the fortune teller using a ventriloquist-type voice to mimic the dead. So it's not actually the dead speaking. Somebody's out there trying to fool other people. And I want to I say this because I think it's important. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be going to fortune tellers. You shouldn't be looking at horoscopes to determine your future. The stars can't tell you any of that. God can tell you. And he can guard your future and walk with you. Those things are false trusts. If you're doing that as a Christian, you're putting, you're putting your confidence in something like Assyria, okay? Something that will fail you, okay? And if you're putting your confidence in God, you don't need those things because he knows better than all of those things. So they put their confidence in God. Why did they do that? They turned away from light, and so they wanted to look into the shadows. Verse 20 Without the word of God, there there is no light. And you can see that. Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to his word, they have no light of dawn. There's no light there. There's no revelation. They're groping around in the dark. Third thing it shows us about this false witness is without the word of God, they will curse their leaders and their gods. And this is a strange irony where people turn away from God, and as a result, they get themselves into a mess, and now that they're in a mess, they turn and they blame God for their mess. That's exactly what he's describing here is, look, God, you must be terrible because I'm not getting life the way that I want it. And they're the ones who turned away from the Lord and the light of his revelation. They're depressed, they're frustrated, and they curse their leaders. It's everybody else's fault. This is the trap of sin that we don't acknowledge that it's our fault in this situation, that we take responsibility for our own actions. And then the fourth thing is that without the Word of God, they will only see the problems, and it will go from bad to worse. Notice that they will look up, they will curse their king and their God, and then verse uh, 22, they will only be distressed and darkness and fearful gloom. They'll be thrust into outer darkness. Sorry, it's at the end of verse 21. They'll look up, and then they'll look down and see. They'll look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. So 
There's this looking up and there's this looking down that takes place and there's no reprieve from the problems. The darkness will come without the Word of God, without trusting God. And that's a a sad reality is that there's a lot of people who have turned away from the true light now and are looking to other things. And that's true even in the church. We're not... We're not people of the word the way that we should be here on Wednesday night. So I don't want to, I don't want to beat down the choir. You know what I mean? Here on Wednesday night, studying the Bible is not the most exciting teaching we do all week. But I will tell you, it's important and it matters. And if you'll hear these words, there's a foundation in it. Okay. So, but but this is true. Is we need to stay hungry for the word of God because it's only there that we have true light in these times. There's a lot of other voices out there, increasingly so. The Bible says that there will be a delusion that will come in the last days. And if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. You can see how that could happen with, I mean, there's deep fake stuff going on now. Come on, it's a, it's a world of delusion that's out there. And you've got to make sure that you know the truth in the middle of it. We've got to know the truth, and we need to know the truth by knowing his word. And so I encourage you to be people of the word. But darkness here is not the last word. And that's the good news, isn't it? That darkness is not the last word that God has to say. You see the darkness and the light of the Lord in chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. Isaiah prophesies the hope of a new day. And he says there will be no more gloom. Okay, This uh, prophetic foretelling of something, it refers to a later fulfillment of a promise here. You have Assyria up there in the north, and there's this threat of it coming down. But Isaiah is now shifting away from the immediate context, and he's saying that there are some eternal truths that we need to know. Okay, You know, whatever circumstance is going on in the world today, that's not the last thing. Okay, that's We have hope beyond this. And there's a, a sudden shift that takes place in this where he starts to look forward to a day when there will be no more gloom. There's an irony to this because the real gloom hasn't even set in before Isaiah prophesies. Okay, so he's prophesying, and in the next step in Israel's history, Judah's history, Israel's history, both, there's going to be deep gloom that's going to happen. But Isaiah's telling them ahead of time, okay, don't stop there, look beyond that, because God has a good day ahead. And that's true for us, too. That whatever you're feeling at this moment, God's got a good day ahead beyond this. But he says in verse 1, there will be no more doom. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Okay, let's go on. I think there's a timetable here, a timeline. Hey, you can see Isaiah's prophecy there. Uh, Starts around probably 7... 42 B.C., and we're working time backwards. So you'll notice that right now he's prophesying to Ahaz somewhere around 732. That's where this these visions begin to come. And the deep gloom is going to happen in seven uh, about 722 B.C. Anybody know what happened 722 B.C.? It's an important date in Israel's history. Assyria takes the northern capital of Samaria, conquers it. That's a big date. Like if you're into dates, 931 is an important date. That's when Israel splits as a nation. 722 is big. 586, 587 B.C., those are the big dates that you can know. And there's actually, we can know the exact day when Haggai prophesies because he tells us exactly the day. We know the day. We could tell you exactly what day of the week it is when he prophesies. And maybe even the time of day, I don't know. But all of this is pointing to a future gloom. And the reason I brought that up is that there will be no more gloom, but the gloom hasn't even come yet. And he's speaking of a later fulfillment of this promise. Notice he says here, in the past, this is verse, this is verse 1 still. Verse 1 is kind of long. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Okay, there's the fall of Samaria there. I'm going to show you a picture here eventually. Right there we go. Okay. 
just go a little bit bigger here. Okay, here's the here's the tribal divisions when Joshua leads them into the land. These are the kind of tribal divisions that you can see. And you notice that Naphtali and Zebulun are way up north. Okay, the reason that's important is because they're the ones who are going to be humbled first. Okay, so Assyria is going to come down and take out Samaria in 722. But a little bit before that, the first ones to be taken into captivity are going to be, and you can see the order of that here. I'll zoom in a little bit so you can see it. It's going to be Naphtali and Zebulun. Okay, they're the first that are going to be hit by the Assyrian attack. And so what Isaiah is saying here is he's saying in the past, okay, he humbled them. Do you know, it seems to me, and I think this is the understanding of most uh, Bible scholars that are conservative, that that hasn't happened yet. And so when he says in the past, this is a prophetic statement of certainty. Do you know that the prophets often use a prophetic past when they're referring to something in the future? Uh, I'll give you an example that you all know, and that's this. By his stripes, we were healed. What's were? That's a past tense verb, isn't it? It's the to be verb in the past tense. Okay, and so when Isaiah prophesies that in Isaiah 53, and so we know that he already does this in other places, he's using a past tense verb of something that hasn't even happened yet. It's a prophetic past. And the reason that prophets did this is they did it in order to emphasize certainty, that it's so certain that it will happen, it's as if it already happened. Okay, you see that? So when he says, by his stripes we were healed, Jesus for another 700 years won't die on the cross and receive those stripes, and yet he talks about it in past tense. And so I think this similar thing is happening here. In the past, Naphtali and Zebulun um, he will be humbled, but in the future... He will honor Galilee of the nations. He will honor them. Okay, so there's a darkness that surrounds this. And the darkness he's referring to is theirs first, Zebulun and Naphtali. Um, but then he says, he mentions Galilee of the nations. He's talking about the same thing. Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is right here. Can you see Sea of Galilee here, if you know your your map of Israel, it's this one right here. Okay. Um, Galilee of the nations. And so this area has always been a place where um, there's been a melting pot, a mixing pot of nations. And that was true in the time of Isaiah, you had a mix of Hebrews and Canaanites and Arameans and Hittites and Mesopotamians. Um, they all contributed to the mix. And even in Jesus' day, um, on the, which would be the east side of the Sea of Galilee, we had a region known as Decapolis, right? Anybody know what Decapolis means? Ten cities, right? And then on even on the western bank of the Sea of Galilee, there was a Gentile city, a major Gentile city there. And so it's. I think there's good reason to believe that Jesus and his disciples all spoke Greek in addition to Hebrew and Aramaic. And that's not outrageous. The only reason it's outrageous is because we're Americans and we usually speak one language. But it's not outrageous for them to have done that. Anyway, um, it was looked down upon... Um, because they weren't Jerusalem. You know how probably some people from New York City, Nick's from New York City, he probably doesn't feel this way about us, but feel like the rest of the nation is like sticks and nobody nobody really sophisticated out there, the flyover farm countries and all of that. I think that's part of it. And people from the north had an accent too. And I think that was a little bit looked down upon. But the further you get outside the capital city, the more people kind of look down upon you. And Galilee was one of those. And that may have been part of it, is the Gentile influence that was there. Multiple languages? Mm hmm.
Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Well, I think in Isaiah's case, he was speaking because the Holy Spirit prompted him with a specific message, and so maybe a little different, but but I understand where you're going with that. It's a it's an understanding that God has created a certain future for us, and we walk in that, and we live in that. And so I think when he's speaking, he's trying to let people know this is a certainty that this will take place. So Galilee of the Nations, and this particular area uh, is a place where there was a melting pot. And so he says, of Galilee of the Nations, um, by the way of the sea, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Did you notice that again? Have seen. What kind of verb is that? Have seen. It's past tense, isn't it? Okay. Have seen. It's not happened yet. It will happen, but there's a certainty about it. It's, a, it's the prophetic past as if it's already happened. It's being spoken of as if it's already happened, even though it hasn't yet happened yet. And when will this happen? Do you notice that this Galilee area is where Jesus grew up? Right? So what I love about this, probably in where Zebulun had their territorial boundaries, is where Nazareth is. You know, Cana of Galilee is there in, in the Zebulun area. And, uh, and, Naft- and this is the area where a lot of his public ministry took place. Like Capernaum, that would have been in the territory of Naphtali. Okay, so this is where Jesus started his itinerant ministry, and he, he, he preached the uh, Sermon on the Mount in this area. He healed a lot of people. He delivered from demons. He raised the dead. Okay, these things are all happening there. Why would it say that they've seen a great light? Because light himself is coming down to live in this area of darkness. I think it's beautiful to see this this way, that he's he's done this. He's prophesied that though they were first to go into exile, they're going to be first to see the light. It's beautiful. Isaiah 9, verse 6 through 7. We just got a few minutes here. The reason that they can um, have this great joy, he mentions some things here like... Um, the, the joy that will come from seeing the great light. They will have increased joy and they'll rejoice. As people rejoiced in the harvest. The harvest has come in. Uh, as warriors rejoice at victory. Um, just following this on down, they're going to burn their, their war clothes. And then this is the reason why. Notice it says, for to us. This is a, the statement of the reason. Okay, the the, the reason that they can rejoice is because for to us a child is born and a son is given. And this uh, couplet here is really important because this is not just the baby being born. This is a son being given, the son of God being given. Do you know that? So that, this, I mean, we know that, obviously. This is more than just another child coming into the world. And that's a miracle and that's precious in God's sight. But this is more than that. A son is given, is given to his people. And this shows us in, in verse 1 how gloom is done away with. This, this uh, child is born, the son is given. And how shame is replaced with honor. And what the light does in the darkness and why there's rejoicing among God's people, it communicates the purpose. And so then he goes into the throne names. We talked a little bit about this on Sunday for to us a child is born, the son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that day forward. There are four throne names that are given. The first is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful isn't just, oh, isn't that wonderful? This is great, and all of that. Wonderful is uh, the Hebrew word pele, okay? P-E-L-E, if you want a transliteration. And this means miraculous. So when we, we hear of wonderful, you need to not think of the, um, the way we often use it, okay? What we need to think of is a wonder, signs and wonder, okay? So when we think of him being 
wonderful. We're talking about something miraculous. Uh, a good a good way to see this same word is uh, the word Pele is used when it says, is anything too hard or too wonderful for the Lord? Okay, remember Jeremiah, uh, he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? When it says that, is anything too uh, miraculous that the Lord can't do it? Okay, he uses the word Pele there. And so this is referring to his miraculous power. And as counselor, he's a miraculous guide who can ensure that his plan um, will be accomplished because nothing is impossible with him. John Golden Gay in his commentary says, Yahweh is expert at determining what the future should bring and seeing that it does so. And Yahweh is capable of making plans that bring about events that one would never have guessed He's not only powerful, but his power is coupled with his wisdom. Do you see that? That when we pray sometimes, I say this because I think we Pentecostals, we love the power of God, but we need to understand that his power is not this wild running energy that's out of control. It's power directed to a purpose, and he does it according to his wisdom, which means he knows what's best. And sometimes when we pray for things, we want to see this big outstanding thing, and he knows what's best. It may not be the thing we need. We need to trust that his power accomplishes his purpose, and he can only do that because he's wise in his use of power. And so when it says wonderful counselor, this is referring to both his power and his wisdom being coupled in one person. It's not magic either. And I'm glad you said that because I think sometimes we blur the lines between those things. Magic is in the realm of superstition, isn't it? Okay, so this fact about our Savior is demonstrated in his greatest moments. He's not a miracle worker without effect, uh, and God doesn't do parlor tricks just so we can be in awe of it. Isaiah says in chapter 5, Woe to those who say, Let God hurry that we may see it. Okay, as if he's there doing the miraculous to entertain us. He's not. He's doing it to accomplish his purpose. And so we look to him to accomplish his purpose, which is wise and good. Okay. Um, he didn't use his miracles to escape the cross. Um, he uses his miracles to the greatest effect. And in wisdom, he let the cross have its momentary victory. And then he did something far more compelling. He rose from the dead. And we should be assured today that Jesus will guide us wisely and carry us miraculously to the victory he's planned for us if we'll trust him enough to hold on to hope. Then he's called Mighty God. We dealt with this on Sunday, so I'm not going to go into this a whole lot, but it's El Gibor. E-L, it's the name of God here. Gibor, Gibor. And it means something like um, God the hero or God Almighty. Okay, so usually Almighty... Uh, is going to be the word Yahweh Sabaoth, but here it's it's uh, Gibor, which means that he is mighty God or God the hero. And so when Israel is facing their foe, Assyria, whoever else it may be, they need to know that God can be trusted and that he's a mighty warrior and he's their hero. Listen, do you know that Assyria doesn't, doesn't ever conquer Jerusalem? Did you know that? It's talked about how um, Assyria will come in and they'll be like the waters that come up to your neck. And they did they did conquer a lot of Judah, but they never captured Jerusalem. And there's one reason for it. Anybody know what it was? It was a certain king, Hezekiah. Yep. Hezekiah, when uh, Sennacherib comes to the gates of Jerusalem, Hezekiah calls upon the Lord. He goes into the temple. He lays the letter down, and he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord answers him. And the cool thing is, is that this is what Ahaz should have done but didn't do, and Hezekiah does, and he proves Isaiah's words to be right. And Isaiah is still alive to see it, and I'm so thankful he did. Sometimes when you're in ministry, you don't always get to see the fruit of your labor, but he got to see all of that being worked out. God is a mighty God, and God took care of it. Ahaz, uh, not Ahaz, we're not going to let him get the credit for that. Hezekiah prayed, went to sleep, and woke up the next morning, and God had gone to war for him. You remember that? It's an excellent story. 
Um, and Jesus does the same thing. He overcomes all of our foes, um, all powers, authorities, adversities, death, adversaries. The Son of God is the hero in our battles. And if we'll trust him enough and hold on to hope, uh, he, he will overcome the world for us. Okay? And then everlasting Father, ad abi, A-D, abi, A-B-I, if you want the transliteration here. And it's surprising that this is used of the Son, isn't it? Everlasting Father, why would he be called Everlasting Father? And this isn't suggesting to us that he's the first person of the Trinity. It's a word picture, like a shepherd, okay, where with one word, Father has uh, the meaning that's pictured, which is the care of people. And he's the father of eternity, of all eternity. So he cares for his people for all eternity. Young says in his commentary, the Messiah is an eternal father. If this is correct, the meaning is that he is the one who eternally is a father to his people. Now and forever he guards his people and supplies their needs, and he will care for us uh, also, and th- through eternity. And then finally, Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. You know how to spell Shalom, Sar, S-A-R. And again, Young says, the cessation of warfare in itself does not bring about a desired condition of existence. There must also uh, be the removal of the cause of war, namely human sin. Okay? When this cause of war is removed, then there can be true peace. For human sin to be removed, however, there must be a state of peace between God and man. Not only must man be at peace with God, but what's more important, God must be at peace with man. The enmity which has existed between God and man must be removed. And we know that that's true. Ephesians 2 says, He is our peace who has made out of two people one and has broken down the middle wall of partition. And what it tells us in following that is that He will be perpetually great, His kingdom will be perpetually great. It will be the fulfillment of a promise. It will be righteous and just, and it will be accomplished by the zeal of the Lord. And I think I want to emphasize that last part here, that it says the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. That means God is seeing to it that it's done, and he does. That was 700 years later. Uh, Jesus did come in fulfillment of the prophecy, even though it looks like the line of David is going to be cut off. He sees to it that a shoot springs up from the stump of Jesse. And the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. And he does. He comes. It looks like Babylon is going to wipe out the promise of God, but it doesn't. And God perpetuates it, and Messiah comes. And that's what we celebrate uh, during this time. So how how does all of this relate to us? Well, If you don't know, let me suggest to you that it starts with trusting in the Messiah. Trust him instead of the wrong kinds of things. Okay, Trust him instead of the wrong kinds of things. Trust his word rather than superstitions. Okay, I don't know if uh, you've thought about that much, but as Christians, that's the Bible is our guide for faith and practice. We know who God is through the word of God, not through feeling and groping around in the dark. He's told us, wouldn't you be frustrated if you, and you've done this, and I have too, told people what your intentions were, and they chose to believe what they've made up in their mind rather than what you've said? Or you've told them who you are and what you're like, and they're like, no, that's not what I believe about you. Um, Okay, if you felt the pain of that, imagine how much more God has experienced that. Instead of looking to what he said about himself, People have made up their own minds about what God is like or shoved all that off altogether and put him on the fringe and act like he's irrelevant. So our response to that is to look to his word and to trust him. The second thing is to fear him rather than the wrong kinds of things. What are we taking seriously in life? We taking CNN more seriously than the Bible? Or how about our conspiracies that pop up on the Internet? Do we take that more seriously than we do the Word of God and who God is. And then the third thing is we need to listen to Him rather than the wrong kinds of things. There are other voices out there. And I was going to tell you the rest of the story at this point, but I already did. Hezekiah prayed, and uh, God delivered His people. 
And so Babylon eventually does um, conquer Jerusalem, but because of Hezekiah's faithfulness, there was reprieve. And it shows us that God's able to respond to us in that moment, and that those threats are conditioned upon our response. And so let's turn to God with all of our heart. And during this time, if you're feeling the darkness, we know it probably better than most. I imagine there are some people in Norway and Sweden that they understand a little bit about what we're going through here, don't they? About the, the darkness. And maybe you're facing an emotional darkness right now. Or maybe there is a spiritual attack that's causing there to be a spiritual darkness right now. I want you to remember your light. We have light in the Lord. And we can look to Him. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.